Well, thank you very much indeed. It's such a treat for Annette and me to be here. That's my wife, in case you weren't here last night. And she doesn't really speak much in public, but she speaks quite a lot at home. And that's, <laughs> and, uh, that's a great blessing. And, um, it is a great blessing. And um, I came to Christ through a combination, I was saying last night, but some of you weren't here, of the Holy Spirit and my wife. And that's a very powerful combination, I can... I assure you, and I'm deeply grateful to her uh, for, for that, because she persevered. Uh, she was told by the Lord, and I didn't know that at all, of course, because she's not of this generation. She didn't tell me, or I'd run a mile. She was told by the Lord that we were to be married. I don't know whether she regarded that as a promise or a threat, but she, she wrote it down on the back of a photograph, which I didn't see until we were on our honeymoon, and she showed it to me. And she wasn't going to marry somebody who wasn't converted, so she set about uh, my conversion. She didn't tell me that was the plot, but um, that was what, what the plot was, and I'm, I'm so grateful to her um, for that. She's had a little picture for you, which I'm trying to persuade her, perhaps during the ministry time, to, to share with you, because she does have pictures. She has a lot of pictures and things. The Lord speaks to her in that sort of way. I wonder if I can tell you a story that I sometimes tell. Do you all know the story of the Texan on holiday in Scotland? Really? Oh, amazing. Oh, that's great. Well, you got chatting to one of the local crofters. I come from Scotland, so you don't have to be defensive about the Scots. It's not a racist joke or anything. And um, he started talking to the crofter, and he said, do tell me, how big is your croft? So the crofter said, well, you see the fence that goes up there, and the hedge there, and the telegraph pole, and the pylon that come down there to the lane, and it comes back there to the wee house here, and that's, that's my croft. So um, he then said to the Texan, how big is your farm in, in America? And the Texan, I think, trying to be sensitive, said to him, well, uh, let me put it this way. He said, I can get into my car first thing in the morning, and by the end of the day, I'm still not halfway to the end of my farm. And the crofter thought for a moment, and then he said, I, I had a car like that once. <laughs> and... and Thank you. Thank you. But the reason that I tell the story is that he slightly missed the point. And uh, Tillicke, you know, the German theologian, wrote once that God may have to write under the lives of many people at the end of time. An interesting life in many ways, but you missed the whole point. And I like to think that at a time like this, because so, I'm so grateful to have been invited, to, and I really wrestle with what, and you may say I haven't quite got there yet, but what, what I could talk about. But I really hope that at a conference like this, the, the purpose of it is to recover, to regain the point. To rethink, remember in that sense, what you first signed up for. What first got you excited? What you saw in Jesus that you said, I want to follow that man whose identity is God, I understand, but I want to follow him for the rest of my life. Because if you're anything like me, we can get that obscured. So in this first session, and if you're, any of you are here for the second session, I, I hope to be, but... I'll talk about something else, but I want to talk in this first session about leadership. 
And it's a dangerous thing for me to do that because I really know nothing about it. But don't be, don't be offended if you're a teacher. My daughter doesn't like me saying this, but Oscar Wilde, you know, used to say that those who can't learn take to teaching. And um, I feel a little bit like that. But I do want to offer you one or two thoughts. They're hooks, really, to hang things on. And I'm hoping that something may spark in you. You say, I'd like to look into that a bit more. I'd like to think about that. There was a, a conference of about a, hundred, uh, about a thousand of America's most elite institutions recently in the States. And they all agreed that there was a crisis of leadership in American society. The nation was being guided, they said, not by leaders, but by managers. Uh, I talk about America because it's easier, really. To talk about America doesn't hit us quite so hard. But there's nothing different, I don't think. So the first point that I want to make, really, is because uh, what they concluded was that the country was being overmanaged and underled. So I suppose my first point is that leadership is not management. And many of the books on leadership that you get today, I think, are about management. How to do this and how to do that and how to manipulate people and how to use the power that you've been given to persuade them that you're right and they're wrong and how to... all that. David Aikman, writing in Time magazine a few years ago, um, in the wake, actually, of the G8 summit, his heading was, What Has Happened to Leadership? In the history of the world, he said, I cannot think of a period when there have been so few great leaders. We're living in a world where no one wants to endure pain, where they want casualty-free wars. Everybody's afraid to take risks. We're not willing to make the necessary changes that may cause us heartburn. It's not a great day, he said, for drawing out heroic figures. Human beings don't live only by fighting evils, but by positive goals. Individual, collective, and vast varieties of them. And much more significant, I think, in a sense, uh, the crisis in Christian leadership, an increasing factor is, is burnout. It's very evident amongst lay leaders. Anybody puts their head above the paraffin gets piled up with more and more and more and more stuff. I remember when we were first starting in Hilton, we had a sweet uh, girl, lady, woman, um, I'm not really politically correct because these things change so quickly. But she was lovely and she wasn't male. So <laughs> she agreed to cook supper one night. Well, do you know, after that, she was just cooking supper every night until she finally got worn out. Well, that's a light-hearted example of what is happening and can be duplicated all over the place. So my question really is, is our pattern of leadership taken from the world or from God? And that's just worth, worth working out because you who are leaders have it within your hands to change this thing by making it clear that you're not going to opt into this. You are going to opt into that and anybody who likes that can come with you. 
So if you want to look in your Bible very quickly with me to St. Mark chapter 10, I, I want to ask this question, what makes a leader? Mark's Gospel, just to chapter 10. Um, 37 and then 42. You, you remember the passage very well, I think. Starting at 37. Well, a little bit before. James and John, you remember, they went to Jesus. They, they caught him in the passage, I think. And they said, Lord, um, and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? They said, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. And the ten got indignant. And then if we go to verse 42, Jesus called them together. Interesting point that, actually, I think. If you want to correct anything in your community, do it by teaching. Try not to isolate the person who's made a mistake and push them in a corner and make them feel bad about themselves. So just develop your next sermon on that subject, which is what Jesus did. He called them all together and he said, I want to tell you something. You know, he said, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. I think Mike warned us against quoting Greek, but there are actually two different words here, so if you'll forgive me. Um, and I had to do Greek O-level, so it must be for some purpose, and I think it's for telling you that I know the difference between these two words. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That, that's the word diakonos, from which we get deacon. And certainly in my tradition, the Anglican tradition, a deacon precedes a priest, because he's He's a servant, and then somehow we've lost our way, and the priest seems to think he's no longer a servant. But actually, he is. Verse 44, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all, doulos. For, and here, listen to this, if you wouldn't mind. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So, number one, leadership in the kingdom is therefore quite different from that in the world. And we could illustrate that, and you can see it all over the place, actually. And worldly leadership introduced into the church is a horrid thing. Uh, it seems to me that's why in John 21, you remember, Jesus calls Peter. Um, I, 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 I've never felt, when I was growing, when I was first a Christian, it seemed to be fashionable to, um, to be mildly critical, in a loving way, of course, of, of Peter. I, I wouldn't dare do that. I think Peter was amazing. Who was first out of the boat? <laughs> While the others sat comfortably keeping warm. Who was the first to volunteer? First to promise to... Fantastic. Couldn't always deliver the goods, but I'd rather have that, actually. But he got into a muddle, as you may remember, and he promised that he would never let Jesus down, and then he got cornered by a a servant girl in the high priest's courtyard, you remember, she said to him, you're a Christian, aren't you? And he said, no, 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 no. She said, surely you are. You've got a Yorkshire accent. You come from the north. You're... No, no, he said, no, no, not me. 
I'm sure he... Uh, no, I don't know the man. I tell you, remember, in the cock crowed. But what do you think Peter felt like that? And then in John 21, of course, that's the first time that Peter had met Jesus since the resurrection. He'd seen him on the cross, but he hadn't seen him to speak to. And Jesus starts a conversation with him. Don't you think Peter was a little bit anxious about the way this conversation was going to go? Because he'd seen that Jesus had sort of seen him and knew what he was saying. And, of course, there are endless books about what Jesus was doing because Peter had denied him three times. But the point is that Jesus, of course, therefore, I think to help Peter, really reinstated him three times. And he asked this question, you remember, three times. The question was not, do you worship me? <laughs> do you believe in me? But do you love me? Do you love me? Now, that's the question. And you remember Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And the third time, Peter was hurt. I, I understand that, don't you? Because he thought, oh, Lord, do you not really believe me? I think he was really worried that Jesus was about to say to him, you're going to let me down again. And I, I, but he didn't. He just said, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. And I think the truth is this, that before Jesus could entrust to Peter, um, genetically through Peter to the disciples, the apostles and the rest of us, I'm not suggesting that Peter was singled out for that purpose, before Jesus could entrust the most precious thing he had, which was his flock, he needed to know the answer to that question, which is, do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, then the flock is safe. If you don't love Jesus, they're in deep, deep trouble. And you can see that all over the place. So I think that's the question we ask ourselves every morning. Jesus asks you every morning, do you love me? Not do you just think this is a good career move. <laughs> good. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. So world power, in a sense, we could talk about this for a long time, but I'm not going to. But world power is sort of power over and control and win-lose and competition and domination and authoritarian and we-they and status quo and rigidity. Jesus' power is power with support, win-win, cooperation, facilitation, enabling, we-we, making friends change and flexibility. I remember uh, a young man came up to me after the evening service at Holy Trinity some years ago, and he said, you know, um, I'd been wrestling all the way through this service, all the way through the worship, incidentally. It wasn't through the brilliant talk or the um, notices. or It was during the worship. He was wrestling with God. Because he said, I, I wanted to give my life to the Lord, but I didn't want to give up my girlfriend. And I wanted to give my life to the Lord, but I thought he might send me off to Africa as a missionary. And towards the end of the worship, he said, I heard a voice saying to me, why don't you give in? And we'll both win. He said, do you think that could be God? So I said to him, well, do you know anybody else who'll let you think you've won if you've given in? said, no, I don't. So we agreed it was God. Isn't that kind of him? So he gave his life to the Lord. And they both won. Jesus won, and he won. That's the way God works. 
But he needs us to understand, I think, the, that that love and that relationship involves certain things. Love in, always involves certain things. It involves, doesn't it, a certain degree of willingness, self-revelation, willingness to play the game, to be open with God, to be honest with God, and to reveal yourself to God, which most of us find difficult. Because the world has taught us not to do that. Because if you're too open with people, they'll take advantage of you. And one of the passages that I came back to a great deal when I first, well, all the way through my time at Helichintia, not that that's a model at all, I assure you, but it's that passage in Genesis 32. Again, look at it if you'd like to, or look at it later, but, because uh, I think it's a fascinating passage. I'm not going to spend long on it, but it's, it's a critical moment in the life of Jacob. Jacob was a trister, as you know. It was a family tray. They were all tristers. Uncle Laban was a trister. And Jacob was a trister. He was a, what would be called a businessman nowadays. <laughs> well, no, I don't mean that rudely. It just, he saw a bargain and he went for it. And, well, you know, I'm not being rude. You know, they're very honest businessmen, I believe. <laughs> but the point is, the last time he'd seen his brother Esau, do you remember, Esau threatened if he ever saw him again, he would murder him and kill him. For quite good reason, actually, because he'd robbed him of his birthright and everything else. And Jacob went off, do you remember, lived with Uncle Laban, cheated him out of a few goats and a few sheep and things. And then the moment came, and God said to Jacob, now go back and face Esau. And reasonably enough, he was very nervous about that whole process. And you remember he sent on flocks so that Esau would be pleased? Book of Proverbs says it's good. <coughs> Look ahead and to see what might happen. And he sent him on flocks and servants and things and, and, and said, just give, you know, give my love to Esau. And say, I'm really looking forward to meeting him and, um, and all of that. And the point of the story is at this point in, in Genesis 32, verse 22, uh, it, we pick it up. That night Jacob got up, he took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. See, he was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? Jacob said, Jacob, he said. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you struggle with God and with men and have overcome. And then you remember the sun rose and he walked with a limp. Now what we're seeing there is what we would call the moment at which Jacob was born from above. Born again, the Spirit of God came to him. But the process was God forcing Jacob to face up to what he was. And it was a painful process, I think. But to do that, Jacob had to be robbed of all his, what we would call, status symbols. His flocks and his possessions, his jaguar and all his stuff, his secretary, and were all the other side of the jabber. And he and God were alone together. 
When the older vines, you probably know, but the older vines used to say, a man or a woman is what he is on his knees before his maker. And I used to pray often for what it's worth, but I, I used to say to the Lord, you know, I'll talk a little bit about how we maintain this relationship if, if we can. But I often, often used to say, Lord, 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 you know that I'm nothing. And what's actually I need you to know, which is even more important, I know that I'm nothing. Now help me with this and this and this and this and this. And I think that's a key moment. Because actually we, we are nothing. And those of us who know that we're nothing need encouragement to see that God nevertheless has chosen us, knowing that we're nothing. And those that don't know that we're nothing, I think, need to understand what God was saying to Jacob, which is you. In the early days, um, I, I took over, if that's the right word. I mean, I always say if you're leading a church, or if you think you're the leader of the church, which may or may not be the same thing, but if you do, I, I used to go, I went to the first four, I think, or five, John Wimber had these, what he called, international pastors conferences. And we weren't remotely international, and not many of us were pastors. And I was very fortunate to be able to, uh, to be a, a, a minister at... Um, a church where 26 other people were able and willing to pay and spend their summer holidays in California at a, an international vineyards pastors conference. And um, I, I, all I can tell you is, I mean, I, just to sort of set the seat, what I inherited was a, a traditional Anglican church. And I didn't come here to be rude about the Anglicans. I am an Anglican and I'm proud of that. And uh, if you're allowed to be proud as a clergyman, I'm not sure about that. But that's my allegiance anyway. But we had 1662, 11, uh, 11 o'clock matins from the 1662 prayer book. We had a sung robed choir, some of whom who were converted. We had issues up to here. And not a young person in sight. For obvious reasons, really. And... God was so kind because what the vineyard provided for us in those days, which would be about the mid-80s later. No, mid-80s, I suppose. What the vineyard provided for us was a model, you see, which you've got here already, a model to which we could move. But at that time, I assure you, and some of you may know that, but at that time, there was, apart from the Rumford Christian Fellowship, which was a wild gathering of... Do you remember that? You... Oh. Well, well, they were wild, weren't they? And they had worship. They were the only people in the country that I'm aware of that had worship. And they very kindly asked me to go and speak at a worship conference in Kinmore Hall. I couldn't hear myself think. It was just, you know, the volume was so loud. And suddenly they broke into the 23rd Psalm sung to Crimmon, which we'd sung since I was this high, but not at that volume. And it taught me a lot that, you know, the model is very important. I'd love to have done that, but not at that volume, that was all. Anyway, apart from that, there was no worship like that. And all we knew was uh, organ music, anthems, choirs, and all that sort of stuff. And I couldn't 
see how we could get from where we were to where we wanted to get to. Because we had no young people at all, and I knew that we weren't going to until we changed, but we didn't know what to change to. You probably know the story, do you, of the, 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 the tourist in Ireland who stopped the native and asked how to get to Mullingar. Do you remember that story? He said, can you tell me how to get to Mullingar? And the Irishman thought for a moment and said, well, if it was to Mullingar I was wanting to go, it wouldn't be from here I'd want to start. <laughs> and I felt exactly like that. But it's the only place we could start from. And in all honesty, I was wandering around. In California, you can do that because you know all the streets are straight and you, you, you can't get lost, unlike Norwich. Or <laughs> so I went out. I couldn't sleep. I just went out late at night and I turned right out of the hotel, just walked and walked and walked until I got to the beach and I turned around and walked back. And I remember saying, Lord, and the point of the story is that it could be true for any of us, any of you. I said, Lord, I, I don't see how we can change this stuff. Because I'm not radical. There are some, some of you who are leaders may be radical. Some of my brethren in the Anglican church seem to be radical. They've always got some row going on. There's always some correspondence and they're always fighting something. I'm not like that. I, I want a peaceful life if I can get it. And I, I just couldn't see how this would lead to peace. And I, I said to the Lord, you know, I'm not radical and I can't do this and I can't do that. I and I would only say that I'd heard the voice of the Lord, I think, prompt, uh, as a voice, literally, about two or three times at the most in my life, and that was one of them. And what he said was, all I want is you. And I remember thinking, and I said, oh, Lord, I can do that. Is that all you want? I didn't, still didn't see how he was going to get from... I thought I can do that. And I think that's the message in a sense of, of, of leadership. A man or a woman in the hand of Jesus is a life-giving weapon to millions of people, as you know. And I thank the Lord so much for that. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death. So Jesus emptied himself of all desire to dominate. So I think we can begin to see that leadership of the Jesus type is service. Is service. Which is the opposite of the worldview. Uh, and I want to break that down a little bit. Because number one, we're servants. We're not actually servants of our flock, number one. We're servants of Jesus, number one. Which is a very different thing sometimes which is why leadership is lonely. And if you look at the beginning, you'll know it already, but if you look at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 3, we're told that Jesus appointed 12, Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. He gave them authority. Now, I think in all honesty, and it's too far even from Albury to come and not, not be honest with you, I'm always nervous of people who don't seem to understand the nature of authority. Um, and by that I mean this. God's purpose has always been for mankind, and that includes, of course, women, us as humans, to exercise authority. We were given the world and told to exercise authority. We actually, as human beings, as you may remember, in the whole history of, um, of, of, the, of the biblical history, we actually abused that authority and gave the world to Satan. I know we were deceived and got into a muddle, but we did, and we gave it to Satan. So that when Jesus is being tempted, you remember, in the desert, and Satan says to him, uh, I'll give you all, Jesus doesn't say they're not yours to give, he knows that they were because they'd been handed over, all the kingdoms of the world, by us to Satan. So when Jesus came to earth, he immediately, this is a slight digression, but he immediately started to enroll into an army, an active army, the people that he was going to share his authority with, and ultimately through whom he was going to be able to present the world back to his father. Because he saw, because human race had handed the world to Satan, it was through the human race that Satan was to be robbed again. And the world would be given back to the Father. And Jesus was the first human member of the human race. And since that time, he has been recruiting men and women into his army to do his work under his authority. That's why I love the centurion. You remember, the centurion doesn't say, he does not say, I myself am a man with authority. I'm rather grand because I'm a centurion. He says, I too am a man under authority. The inference being, because of that, I understand the nature of authority. And we have authority because we are under authority. And authority in the New Testament, uh, there's going to be a little break, so you can go for me if you want to and correct me and help me, but authority in the New Testament is a good thing. Authority is a good thing. Authority in a church is a good thing. Keeping it Christ-centered is the issue. When it's Christ-centered, then... I remember John Wimber some years ago saying, if you want to be a dictator... Do you remember him saying this? Perhaps you were too young. He said about church leadership, he said, if you want to be a dictator, he said, and I do, you can until something goes wrong. And then you wish you had a few people with you. But you haven't brought them with you. So they go for you. But authority that is Christ-centered is following what Jesus uh, is asking us to do. And actually, what we notice is that when I choose to obey true authority, I don't feel it or fe inferior or put down.
this true authority is spiritual and respects my moral freedom. Obedience is my free choice. You choose to follow, your, your people choose to follow you. You choose to follow whoever is leading you. I'm a creature under authority. I've always sought to respect the Bishop of London. And if I don't respect the Bishop of London, then it's time I got out of the Anglican Church. Because you can't burrow away from the inside. If I'm part of an institution, I'm part of the institution. And I respect his authority, and I, I want to do, insofar as I can, move in the direction that he wants to move. And obedience is my free choice. Choice. One of the wisest words uh, that I've noticed, actually, about spiritual authority uh, comes in the writings of Menno Simons. I don't know if any of you read Menno Simons nowadays. He died in, what, 1496, 1561 he died. Hmm. I wasn't alive then, in case you're wondering, either. He was a Catholic priest, Roman Catholic priest, increasingly disillusioned. He renounced Roman Catholicism and became one of the founding fathers of the Mennonite Church, actually. Uh, what he wrote, and I'm about to read it to you, but he wrote it in Reformation times, which makes it particularly remarkable because at that time, as some of you will know, theological opponents were generally burnt at the stake. So there was a lot um, at stake, if I can use that word again. I, d I didn't mean that. What he said was this. Spiritual authority is never to make the rebel conform. Spiritual authority's only purpose is to enable the obedient person to live a holy life. Therefore, it rests on submission and obedience freely given. Furthermore, spiritual authority has only spiritual means at its disposal. Its only weapons are prayer, Scripture, counsel, and the power of a holy life. And I always think that, you know, authority in the New Testament is self-authenticating. Occasionally, Paul has to remind some people who don't know the history how he came to be an apostle. But for the rest of it, I think what happened was people said, we've got this issue. What does Paul think? Well, let's do that. We've got this issue. Oh, wait a minute. Paul's coming quite soon. We'll ask him. Because they wanted to know what he thought. And you'll th you, if you reflect upon it, the people that you most respect are people who don't impose their authority on you. It's just that you want to know what they think. Because you recognize the authority of Jesus in them. Because they are under authority in the same way as Jesus was under authority. And even Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I never cut a furrow of my own because I and the Father are one. Are, are we still together or have I lost you altogether? Now, I, that's meant to be liberating. It's meant to be, it's meant to be a, a liberating thought because Jesus commissioned you, commissioned me to be with him. Uh, I come from a sort of country family in the north of Scotland. We used to have dogs that went off out and looked for things that we could shoot and kill. I know it's not, I know, I know. I'm not asking you to pass judgment on that. A dog that is well trained, that stops when it's called to stop, 
doesn't get too far ahead, doesn't go into the hedge you're not ready to go to, does what he's told, is a blessing. A dog out of control is a nightmare. Romping all over the place, jumping up and down all over the place, you can't get near, you can see the picture. A Christian out of control is a menace. A leader out with the authority of Jesus is a menace to everybody. But worse still, I think you can picture the Father in heaven saying, oh no, look at him. Where where is he now? (laughs) Look at him. Until we come back and we say, Lord, as we all have to, I think from time to time, he says, my experience, you have to say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've tried tried it. It's not quite working. I want to come back now. I remember John Wimber. You can see we were hugely influenced by John Wimber. The church in England, I'm not just talking about the church of England, owes more, in my humble opinion, to John Wimber than to anybody else since John Wesley. Up and down the country you find people who are. I remember John Wimber telling us, he was a church growth analyst. Uh, He was a Quaker by nature, by origin. And he had uh, examined... um, about 650, 700 churches all over the States. And one night he was in a motel, he'd been traveling, and he was in a hotel, and he was lying on his hotel bed, and he sweetly said, that's what I loved about him, what you saw is what you get. It, it was, he, was, there was, he, was, he was just absolutely genuine. I can't talk, but he was a tiny bit overweight, and Californian, and laid back, and his people chewed gum, and they wore hats in church, and all the things that we found difficult, the men, that is, but he loved Jesus. And he was lying on his hotel <laughs> bed, apparently, and he just said to the Lord, I'm sick and tired of all these churches. They say they're keen on mission, but they don't spend anything on mission. They say they're keen on this, but they don't spend anything on it, time, money, or energy, which are the only judges of what you feel strongly about. What do you spend your money on? You tell me what you feel strongly about. Well, I'll ask you what you spend your money, your time, and your energy. That means the resources you put into it. That will tell me what you're really interested in. He knew that. That's what he spent his time looking at these churches for. And he went to every church, and he used to say, you know, from the airport to the church, the pastor would say, you know, we're very keen on foreign mission. How many foreign missions you got? Well, none at the moment, but we're hoping to get a few quite soon, and all that. And um, he was just fed up with the whole thing. And as he was lying on his bed, apparently the Lord spoke to him. The Lord used to speak to John in American for some reason. But what he said apparently was, John, (laughs) I've seen your ministry. And now I want to show you mine. And bless his heart, John said, Lord, that's what I've always wanted. That's what I've always wanted. And he set off on this great journey, and he was the one that taught us. Every, I mean, he showed us what the prophetic might look like. He showed us what healing might look like. He showed us what Christian love might look like. He showed us what the church of Jesus Christ might look like. And I, for one, loved it. And um, we went, started to go down that path, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if I forget to say anything else, I still think that is absolutely key, and we're in danger of losing it. Because we're now in a generation that has seen the effect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and is more inclined to go for the effect than the, from the reality. So the question we have to ask is, are you keen on the ministry of the Spirit by conviction or by convention? 
because you seem that that's what fills a church and you thought there's a shortcut. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking generally. So to be with him, relationship is key. And it involves intimacy, self-revelation, disclosure, loyalty to our leaders, honesty. And relationship to Jesus involves love. And our ministry, and if you forget everything else I say, your ministry, my ministry, your leadership, our leadership, is only effective insofar as we are in touch and in continuity with Jesus. I spend a certain amount of time, and it may not apply here, so forget about it, but I encourage uh, assistance in the, I think, Christian obligation to loyalty. Because I think sometimes we come out of theological college and we really think we're the answer to every problem that God ever had. And you may be, but not yet. (coughs) Because if you go as an assistant, your calling is to be loyal to the assistant. It's his church, in inverted commas. And if you're young and you've got a sweet, married, lovely wife and some lovely little children, you can divide the congregation very easily into those that think you're marvelous. And you can see it. I've never quite worked out why David was so badly served by his people. You know, Joab was a monkey. Absalom was a nightmare. Always whispering, nice looking, shackles of hair, but busy whispering. It's a pity dad's so busy. I'll look after you. Can I counsel you? Oh, come on, I'll help. Just eating away when his job really was to support his father. And David supported Saul up to the end. So my encouragement is to to, to be loyal. And make notes, of course. Make notes all the time if you're an assistant pastor or an assistant, whatever you are, an assistant. Make notes. This is how I will never run a church when I have a church of my own. I think it's a nightmare. It's a disaster. Fatal. But for the moment, I'm under authority. And I will do my very best to make it work. It can never work. I'll try and make it work. If any of you want to play a game, try suggesting to any one of my children that there's something mildly deficient about Holy Trinity Brompton and you'll get your head bitten off because they won't hear of it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. Beautiful, fine, wonderful, perfect. Everything is perfect. I know that it's not, or wasn't, rather. It is now, but it wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't then. Nicky Gumble is the epitome of loyalty. And I could travel anywhere in the world, and I knew there was nobody saying anything negative, anything derogatory, any improvements at all, because they wouldn't have got away with it. And my encouragement used to teach about loyalty, because we had to teach about everything. Teach your children. Teach your people. And um, you may have to go on and on about it until they kill that message because it's a godly virtue because Jesus likes unity. Jesus wants unity. And Jesus will have unity. And when he has unity, then the outside world, he said, will see what a brilliant, wonderful community it is, a community that's worth joining. 
So, next point, leadership is relationship-oriented. Because of what I'm saying, our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with one another. And when I started, I think we all thought it was functionally orientated. You know, X was the church warden, and Y was the treasurer, and um, they were functions in the church. My encouragement to you is to make them your friends. If your treasurer is your friend, you can do quite a lot. So I would try and make sure he is or she is. My first vicar told me that his church warden said he would be available to be telephoned between 10 and half past on a Tuesday morning. What's the good of that? He's got to be available at 2 o'clock in the morning if necessary because he's my friend. And I went out of my way to try and make everybody who is a functionary in the church, everybody, worship leaders, wonderful organists, lovely, um, everybody, because we are a family business. We're based on relationships. We're based on community. Now, you can't get on with everybody, but you can try. And if you really can't get on with everybody, then you, uh, well, you've got to try and find somebody else that you can get on with. But, and we have to find, of course, this balance between what we would call pietism and activism. But it's there in the New Testament. Because Jesus, you remember, said, you are my friends if what? If you do what I tell you. It's, it's not a functional thing like that. It's just, that's what reveals to me that you're my friends. So if you say you're my friend, but you don't do what I ask you to do, it doesn't sound as though you really mean it. So my personal integrity, I don't know if, are we still together? Are you, am I making sense? My personal integrity, your personal integrity, requires you to believe what Jesus believes and to do what Jesus does. That's all you have to do. And Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? So if your yoke is not easy and your burden is not light, if you're not having fun, then your yoke and your burden is not Jesus's, it's somebody else's. And a time like this involves trying to get to the bottom of that. Is it the expectation of the, the people? The expectation of tradition, this is what we do? The expectation of others? I don't know. Because leadership means that you take, it's not just a question of keeping everybody happy, it's you take the lead, as it were, if you are the leader. If you're an assistant, you take the leader's lead. It doesn't stop you saying to them, I, has it occurred to you this is mad, this scheme? You can say that privately. But in public, I, when I first went, my, my first vicar was a lovely man. He was a conservative evangelical. He's dead now. He asked me to go and see him on his deathbed about five or six years ago. And he said to me, I, I never told you, but I asked you to come on the staff because I could see what God was doing in things of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't feel confident enough to introduce him to the church because he had quite a reputation in conservative evangelical circles. He was treasurer of the National Evangelical Council or something. It's a bit difficult to say I've been on the wrong track for quite a long time and I want to lay hands on you all and see that you feel with the Spirit and singing in the Spirit and praying in tongues and all that sort of thing. But 
I'd known no difference. Through my wife, bless her heart, she spent 10 years as what I'd call a traditional conservative evangelical. She read her Bible and she prayed, but she couldn't talk to anybody about Jesus until she was prayed for by a lovely man who laid hands on her and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned, I think last night, and she took off. And she was so keen that I shouldn't have to wait the 10 years that she had waited that she took me straight off to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon's Temple, and there I was prayed for to be filled with the Holy Spirit by lovely South African David de Plessis. I didn't know there was an issue. I didn't know that anybody got into a fuss about these things, but they did. But that battle has been won, I think, by and large, God willing, providing we don't lose sight of the ground that was gained. Because as you may know, and I'm not making a party political point, I can't bear party political points, but do you know that the Pentecostal church in Great Britain grew out of the Anglican church? The whole church council in Sunderland in 1907 were filled with the Holy Spirit and got thrown out of the church because they were praying in tongues. No one seems to have read 1 Corinthians 14 or 12 or 13, actually, though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. It happened again five years later, and they were thrown out again, and they thought, well, so they started the Pentecostal Church of Great Britain. Now, my point simply is that that was absolutely key. Now, my first vicar could see that, and so he wanted to introduce it to the church through through me, because I knew nothing else, and believe it or not, I was quite young at that time, and I'd just started. And I only once let him down. I did let him down. It wasn't my fault, uh, if I can tell you this. Uh, I don't think it was my fault. My darling wife uh, had a wives' group, and she invited Jackie Bullinger to come uh, one morning, on a Thursday morning, to her wives' group. And I'm ashamed to say, I'm a, I know, I know, you're going to probably boo me and throw your Bibles at me, but it never occurred to me that my wife's wives' group was a threat to the reputation of the church and the queen and her crown and dignity and all of that. I, I thought, I thought, um, I thought wives' groups in those days, they had some, you know, certain amount of coffee, and, and scones or biscuits, and then some sanctified gossip, and then, and then a few verses of the Bible, and then they went and, mini- and then ministered and they went home. Well, of course, Jackie Pullinger was there. All heaven was let loose. They were all singing in the spirit. Because if you come within a hundred yards of Jackie, as you know, you'll, you'll sing in the spirit, whether you ever have before or not, whether you want to or not, whether you feel like it or not. Because she has that ministry. You just sing in the spirit. And it was all over London. And Raymond said to me, you never told me that Jackie was coming. I said, well, <laughs> I'm so sorry, but it never occurred to me. But apart from that, I promised him that I would never teach what he couldn't teach. And I would never do what he couldn't do. But he encouraged me in our small groups, home groups. He said, if you're praying with people, lay hands on them, please, and see that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So we made a rule that we would lay hands. Uh, we had a rule then, and we still have on Alpha that we lay hands on everything that moves, as you probably know. And I said that at a conference in Northern Ireland at Belfast, where we were doing an Alpha conference there. And Adrian McCartney, who was a youth leader there, he shouted back from the seats. Uh, and he said, over here, he said, we'll lay hands on everything that isn't moving to get it moving. <laughs> <laughs> so we made a rule that we would lay hands on everything that does move and everything that doesn't move and see what happens. But that's because 
we do. Now, I'm going to say one more thing, mildly controversial. Please forgive me. And if you want to tell me that I'm wrong, because it's actually quite important. It's for that reason, because we are answerable to Jesus, that in my humble opinion, leadership, please listen very carefully, leadership in that sense cannot be shared. Ministry must be shared. But at the end of the day, if you're the leader or you think you are, you've got to get a vision from God and then you've got to work out with God how you can share that vision and bring people with you. But that is the vision. When we were about to plant our first church, there was quite a degree of very godly, because church planting is not a natural phenomenon. A lot of questions, you know. Are we going to lose? We, we planted 100 people, 120 people went with John Irvin to St. Barnabas in West Kensington in 1985 or six. Now, obviously, there were real questions. Aren't we going to lose a lot of leaders? Yes. Are we going to lose, lose a lot of the people who have come to, to give us money? Yes. Aren't we going to lose money? Yes. Then why are we doing this? Because I got it from California where it was obvious. Church planting is the most effective means of growing the church. They've been saying that for years and years and years. Pete Wagner, the professor at Pasadena at Fuller Seminary, traveled all over the world, everywhere in the world, except in the decadent West, it's recognized that church planting is the most effective means of growing the church. So we want to grow the church. And um, so I remember saying to them, well, you know, um, it was the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did he? Yes. Well, where did he say that? Well, that's a very good question. As you know, we used to have it at Christmas quizzes, and we all rushed to the Sermon on the Mount, and we rushed to the Gospels. It's not there, of course, at all. It's, it's tucked away when St. Paul is saying goodbye to the elders and Miletus, and he says to them, for it was the Lord Jesus, he said, who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that is such a countercultural concept that you have to go on and on and on and on about it. Because the world says that what you give, you lose. What Jesus says is what you give, you get to keep. <laughs> if you want to keep salvation, give it away. If you want to keep your healing, give it away. If you want to have money in heaven, I do, you better give it away in advance. And Jesus said, you remember, if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. Give it away. And all I can tell you is that when those 120 went, it was a huge gap. But within six weeks, God had replaced numerically those 120 people. I couldn't believe his mathematics. I don't know how he does it. We had to train them again, of course. And we had to print out some covenant forms and standing orders again. But we got all the people back. And it's worked again and again and again and again. And the more you give, the more you get. And what happens is God says, I'll give what I give, God says, and you give what you give, and let's see who wins. <laughs> and do you know who wins? God, every time. You'll never outgive God. So it's quite a fun game. You give what you can, and a bit more, and God gives it back and back and back and back. And, and that's my point, really. But you must share ministry. You must share ministry. But you are the leader. 
And others, the ministries in the church, need pastoring. And when we started, of course, we got one or two really quite powerful prophets, in inverted commas. Prophets need pastoring. Somebody, you the leader, has to interpret, not the prophet. You have to interpret what the prophet is saying, what God is saying through the prophet. Because you have been appointed and anointed by God to lead that community. And you lead people, many of them much more gifted than you. Count Zinzendorf was the leader of the Herrenhut Church, you may remember that John Wesley was filled with the Spirit through in Switzerland. But the most popular preacher was a little old man who made clocks. But that wasn't a threat to the count, because the count appointed all these people to do all these things. And the great test for us as leaders is whether we're willing to allow other people who are more gifted than us. I used to think of myself as an evangelist till I met Nicky Gumbel. I, I did. I was really keen on evangelism. I used to do a lot of talking about it and doing suppers and that sort of thing. And then I'm <laughs> I see what an evangelist is. But that's good. It's not a threat to me. It's part of the church. Build them up. Appoint them. Ask God to continue that anointing. And then you'll soon find, if you can release them in that way, that the church will grow and you are fulfilling what Jesus told you to do. Now, we ought to break now, ordinary. I want to say one thing very quickly about how you might, because we're servants of, what would you like to do? Should we break now and then we'll come back and help us read? Well, I don't want the tea to be cold or whatever. Or you ought to. Let, let me go on for th- th- two more, three more minutes and then we'll, if I may. So we're servants of, of God. Secondly, we're servants of other people community, the, the people that we are there to serve. And the picture, of course, is servant. The servant refers to the leader's nature and not to his, um, necessarily to his leadership style. Because one of the primary biblical images of leadership is the leader as a shepherd. And I'd love you to think about that. Uh, the shepherd exists for the sheep. Not the sheep for the shepherd and a father. And I used to say to all the lay pastors in our church, you know, when you, when you, when you look around the pastorate, you don't have to have children to understand it, but if you do have children, I think it helps. As a father of your children, you're looking around them all the time, when, particularly when they're young, to see how you can help them to develop. And it's the same with the pastorate group, with people in your flock. I wonder if, if he ought to go on a prison visit. I wonder if she wouldn't like to help with the ministry team. I wonder if they would do a course on speaking. I wonder if they would, how can I help them to develop and grow? And then you get the pleasure of seeing them uh, fully fledged, taking their place. There's nothing more rewarding uh, than that. As a father, Moses, we're told, led as a nursing father carries his infant. That's the picture of leadership for all of us. And in both those images of shepherd and father, the supreme element is love. Because love is the one thing that power cannot command. Because genuine, caring love from the leader evokes their love in return. I often think it's one of the impressive characteristics of David as a leader was his capacity to inspire that kind of devotion. Even, you may remember, from the Philistine Ittai, who 
said in 2 Samuel 15, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. That's Ittai, the Philistine, speaking about David because he just saw something in David that he really wanted to hang on to. And we saw something in Jesus, and we see something in Jesus that we really want to hang on to. And of course, that's the picture of it in John 21 again. The risen Christ, the conqueror of sin, the defeater of Satan, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, on the beach, cooking fish for his disciples. What an extraordinary thought. Why would he do that? And of course, as you know, it's because he loved them. And he wanted to be a blessing to them and a servant to them. Uh, very quickly, how are you going to do that? And I, I've, I'll end with this and then we're going to have some tea if we may. Because um, I think it's worth just looking at. How are we going to do that? Number one, you must take time to be with God. How you do that, I have no idea. When I started at Holy Trinity, I used to get hugely fussed about all sorts of things. I couldn't see. And somebody told me, and our congregation were very understanding. I took the whole of Friday off. I went off with the dog down to Windsor Great Park with a Bible and possibly the old commentary or two. I prepared for Sunday. I had stored up all sorts of pastoral letters that I had to write and issues that required thinking, letters to the diocese, all that sort of stuff. Friday was a day for me to be with the Lord. Uh, I think Rick, what Rick, Rick Warren, you remember? Rick Warren says you have to divert daily, you have to uh, withdraw weekly and abandon annually. Well, his point is that you need to spend time with God. And you can talk to him. Keep a journal, I would. Just write down what you think he's saying. You may be right, you may be wrong. Have a margin so you could tick when prayers are answered. But write your little journal. <laughs> Lord, I am confused. Lord, I am upset. Lord, I am mystified. Lord, whatever I am. Time to be on your own with God. Secondly, I, and these are only suggestions. You may say I'm wrong. I think we each need a small group to whom we're accountable. And I think if you're a single man, you need two or three single men. Because the things that bug a single man are the same as they have for the last several million years. But if we're serious about this Christian life, then we need to take these things seriously. And I would have two or three other men. Make it fun. Play squash with them, whatever you're going to do, and have supper with them. And then say, could we spend the last half hour praying? Because I'm serious about the Christian life, and this is bugging me, and I want to deal with it. Okay? You'll find it's the same for them. If you're a single young lady, I suggest you have two or three others. Single young ladies, because... They understand what you're trying to do. If you're a married couple, I think you need two or three other married couples. Annette and I, that's what I think. Annette and I had three other married couples. We used to meet every 10 days to a fortnight, all the time that I was at Holy Trinity. And I think I'd have gone noticeably mad or out of business without that. And I could say anything to them. I could turn them up and say, I'm sick and tired of the whole thing, and I'm not going to a church ever again. And they would just say, oh, sit down, have a cup of tea, and we'll pray for you. But if the devil can't get at you, he'll get at you through your children. And I can't function, I think Mike said that this morning, I can't function if my, or somebody said it this morning, I can't function if my children are not functioning properly. It just bugs me. 
I want to see them happy and fulfilled. And particularly when they're young, there's, there's always you know, one of them's being bullied or, or they can't get into the right school or they're sick. Or, and we just prayed for them. We prayed for each other. We prayed for their children. And we had a lot of fun. So the evening went, like most evenings, supper, lots of laughs. And then the last half hour, and, and then to bed early so that we didn't have to go around complaining that we were tired. You know, somebody in our home group once said to me, it was about 11 o'clock, I think, she said to me, I'm absolutely exhausted. Would you pray for me? I said, I, I, said, I won't. Go home to bed and get some sleep. What's the point in praying for her for half an hour at 11 o'clock at night when she could be in bed? Anyway, that's, that shows the extent of my pastoral skills. <laughs> A small group. And number three, and, and I do think this is absolutely essential. When I started in Christian life, I used to say that prayer was very important and everybody nodded piously. I now think it's absolutely vital. And I would raise up intercession in your community. I said to our church years ago, at the time of the so-called Toronto, some of you may remember that, there was, there was all heaven flying around all over the place. And I used to get about 30 or 40 letters every day, all starting, dear, whatever they call me, uh, I'm a church leader and I'm gravely concerned about the direction. And I thought, well, I am too. We're all gravely concerned. <laughs> what can we do? Every time we asked the Spirit, Holy Spirit to come, the most extraordinary things happened. Lee, Lee Duckett started mooing. And none of us knew what that was. One of my team, rather unhelpfully, I thought, suggested it might be the oxen at Shiloh. Um, <laughs> I said, well, you know, bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant back to it. I said, well, we're not told that they mooed. And uh, what's the Ark of the Covenant? You know, and, uh, anyway, so... And I said to the congregation one Sunday morning, I said, you know, if you don't pray for us, I think we'll collapse. And it wasn't an attempt to be dramatic, it was a fact. Because you can't sustain that sort of activity for long. And a number of them said, at the end of the day, the number of them, I, I, we identified them, and we called them out to the front, we might even do that today, and identified them and prayed for them. Because it's the most understated and underestimated ministry in the church. Because intercession is a very hard gift to sustain. Because you look odd. Other people are having a party and having fun and laughing and you want to curl up in a corner and cry because you suddenly realize what God feels about millions of people out there who are on their way to destruction and it breaks your heart. And you start crying and they all say, what's the matter with you? Well, nothing's the matter with you. You're doing what God called you to do, which is intercede. And a number of them said, we think we want to pray for you and Annette and your children. And some others said, we're going to pray for Nikki and Pippa and their children. And others said, we're going to pray for Nikki and Scylla Lee and their children. Do you think the devil loves what Nikki and Scylla is doing about the marriage marriage course, parenting teenagers course, pre preparation for marriage course? I don't. So we need to pray for them. And uh, I think it was Billy Graham who used to say that the most underprayed for people in the church are the leaders. Because everybody assumes they don't need it. And if you value your community and your fellowship, I would teach them. You need to pray for us, guys, because we're... We're trying to follow the Lord too. And, um, uh, you know, the devil will go for something like, like, go back to the dog analogy, the dog doesn't go for dead animals, the dog will go for nothing that's moving. And if the church begins to move, the enemy will perk up his interest and start complaining. So I would in establish intercession, affirm it, acknowledge it, pray for it, and, and watch, and, and watch 
what happens. So that would be the third thing I think you would probably pay uh, attention to, and that's as far as I'd like to go. I'm sorry to have kept you from your tea. What time do you want to meet back again? 25 to 4, could we do? Can we manage to... Can you help me and drink your tea in a quarter of an hour? Huge, otherwise I'll get into trouble. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.